0: You have to consume something that I mean, looks yeah, like cocaine. What? I mean, what are actors snorting? Right? What? I'm sure nothing that you snort up your nose can be comfortable. It's right. not like you can just drink tea and pretend it's whiskey like <laughs> you have to snort something. <laughs>
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of No Script. This is where we have an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. Uh, And the we in that equation is I, Jackson Nikolai. And I, Jacob Mann Christensen.
0: I didn't know you were going to go with that intro, so I like, I prepped myself to say my name, like right
1: in there, and you you said I, and I was like, I gotta change what I'm saying. (laughs) Keeping you on your toes right away. (laughs) Yes, we are back again. Hope you are all staying warm if you are in cold regions, or if you are not, you guys are real lucky. Um, so we've got uh, another great play for you this January day. Uh, this is a play by David Rabe. Um, that We, have, we haven't we have done a David Rabe yet play, have we,
0: Jacob? We have not. This is our first one. It's taken us all the way until season two to get to David Rabe. Maybe mm-hmm. surprising, but here we are.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, this is kind of his magnum opus. It's a big, like, uh, one of the plays that he is most well known for. Uh, We'll talk about some of the context, but we are talking about Hurley Burley today.
0: Hurley Burley. I read this play in college. I was reading through plays to find scenes for two men. Um, Some audition scenes, some for competition. Uh, You know, when you're in college theater, you're constantly reading for scenes. So reading for scenes for two men. If you know the play, if you've read the play at the beginning of this conversation, you know that scenes for two men abound in the play. Really, this play is a series of scenes between two people, often two men. Um, So lots of that in play. So that's why I read it, recommended by, I forget, whoever in our department that I I find um, scenes. And so I came across this play. It was not the first David Rabe play that I read, but it was one of the ones that impacted me in an emotional way the most of all of them that I've read. Uh, There's a moment late in the play that really hit me hard even reading it, and I'm sure that we'll talk about that. But I have always sort of held this... It was just this sort of pure theatrical experience I had just reading a script, a piece of dramatic literature and finding myself emotionally involved in this sort of – I don't know. It's this memory that I have of the play. Now reading it later, we'll see what I think going on. But (laughs) I have this sort of pure memory of the play. I remember I was sitting in this coffee shop with a lot of friends, Jackson included, reading this play for scenes and had this emotional moment. It was uh, just one of my great – Uh, uh, memories of scripts.
1: Hmm. That's awesome. That's really cool, yeah. I know that you don't agree with (laughs) me already. (laughs) I can hear it in your tone of voice. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure that that, that, that this play, it's true that this play has a lot of uh, great scenes one-on-one and it is a really deep uh you know uh verbally evocative play so i i am not at all surprised i would surprised. even say that
0: it's verbose <laughs>
1: yes <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> verbally evocative might be the best way to say it <laughs> <laughs> Long? That's just long. another way to say
1: it. <laughs> long. This is quite a long play. 198 pages in my edition, and it's pretty much regular page sizes. Um, yeah, but- I mean, like three
0: hours probably at least to do yeah. the whole version of the script.
1: Three full acts, yes, yes. Well, uh, speaking of uh, the productions of the script and the versions of the script, there are really two notable versions, and the first uh, version was done uh, in nineteen eighty. Four, and that was done uh out in the broadway or no i'm sorry not broadway at the goodman theater in chicago um that was uh, notably done in chicago there and uh that had uh, a couple uh notable names including william hurt and christopher walken uh sigourney weaver was in that production um but then it cynthia also had nixon yep cynthia nixon is in that production um and then there was a subsequent production in 1988, which was out in the Westwood Playhouse in Los Angeles, which is where the play is set. Um, a number of notable actors in that one, uh, probably most notably of the list that I'm looking at is Sean Penn, who played Eddie in that production. And then uh, a couple years later, there was a notable film done. And I'm guessing if, if you know Hurley Burley, you've probably seen a version of the film. Um, and that was produced in 1998. Right. The so so
0: what David Rabe did to create a film is, first of all, he condensed the script down to two hours. Having seen the film now a couple of times, uh, I actually think that, that did a lot for the script. <laughs> Just cutting some stuff out, really condensing it down to its most core storylines and exchanges. Um, I think really helps it. So I, 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 I'm sure that I will be forever thrown out of theatrical circles by saying this, but in this case, <laughs> the movie might be better than the play. <laughs> Just in sheer cutting it down, finding the really core lines through the script those core verbose exchanges uh to to really hang on to that really helped it additionally he reset the play into the 90s it's a play set in the 80s and this new play is set in the 90s which does help a little bit kind of move it forward in time a little closer to us he used cell phones in the play in 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 the movie i mean in a really funny effective way so uh i recommend the movie but with that recommendation probably comes our moment to say this script is foul. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not appropriate. This is R-rated, uh, towards the back end of R-rated, Maybe probably. even
1: M, like, uh, occasionally.
0: <laughs> it, look, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of swearing. That's pretty much true of all of David Rabe's plays. So in the future, when we do David Rabe's plays, we'll be giving right. that warning a lot. Mm-hmm. Lots of swearing. But this one also contains several other problematic elements which would lead me to say um, my recommendation comes with the caveat that you have to be willing to accept what the what the story is um, which is a story about people in Hollywood. this is my synop moving into the synopsis time yes, It's a yes. story about sort of middle level employees in the Hollywood movie making business, a couple of casting directors, a script writer, an aspiring actor, etc. And it's about sort of all of the terribleness <laughs> that exists sometimes, at least at that time, in Hollywood. These are people who are fueled by cocaine and other drugs, constantly high, constantly drinking. There is many, many, many scenes of them snorting cocaine on stage in the movie. Um And not only are they fueled by drugs and alcohol and they swear a lot, but they're also – I mean nowadays we would just say that they're sexual predators. I mean there's a lot of sexual – Attack that happens, especially from the men to the women. Now, I actually think that David Rabe is making some commentary on that in a way that paints the men as the bad guys in that scenario, Um, but it's uncomfortable at times, the way that the core four men treat the three women who uh, occupy the the female part of the play. And the way that they talk about women is not good. The way that they interact with women is worse. Uh, And so, the... (laughs) You have to be willing to go into the play, accepting all that, and looking for something beyond it. Because if that's going to hang you up, just just don't try. I mean, you'll find you'll find enough in there to disgust you. Because a lot of the play is disgusting. And again, I personally think Rabe is commenting on how disgusting that is. I'm not sure that Jackson agrees with me, <laughs> yep. but that's what I think. Um, so for me, I you know I can, I'm a person that can see that can experience the story beyond that. I I know that not everybody can, and that for a lot of people, this play is going to have a lot of hang-ups for you. You know, this is never going to be done by your local community theater. It's <laughs> yeah, never going to be done by your local high school.
1: Uh, unless maybe if you live in L.A.
0: Unless you, maybe if you live in L.A. and oh, your community theater is you know, really edgy. Right, um, right. But the movie is much the same. So if you want to see the movie, you just got to know what you're getting into. I'm sure that it's rated R. Um, and, and so just know
1: that. And if you do get by it, there is like as we have discussed already there is gold in there it is uh, there there's some great scenes there's great writing so i think but there is this initial you know buffer of the content is very heavy in this one
0: yes that that's a good way to put it there's there's stuff in there to find um and i even think meaningful stuff in there to find but it is surrounded by a layer of grime <laughs> so Know that going in and know for those of you who are here to listen to our conversation that the conversation is going there. It's got to to do the play, so we are probably going to swear. We're going to talk about sexual violence. We're going to talk about drug use. If that's not what you want to hear, and we know that for some of you it's not, please feel free to turn off the episode and go listen to one of our more wholesome episodes. Last week we talked about Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, which just seems like a shining beacon (laughs) in comparison comparison to Early Burly. (laughs)
1: Yep, yep.
0: All right, we've gotten all that out of the way. If you're still with us,
1: you know what you're in for, hopefully. So Yes, buckle, buckle up. up. <laughs> Um, what kind of events like do we need a broad picture at the start of this play uh, of, of well, events that happen? Or it's it's a play where a lot of things happen.
0: It's hard to identify like one sweeping plot arc. The, the play is divided into three acts. Each act kind of tells a different sort of mini story in the life of it's really four men, Eddie who is a casting director, his roommate Mickey, also a casting director, their friend Artie, who's sort of a hackneyed writer, and their friend Phil, especially Eddie's friend Phil, who is a a struggling actor, kind of a large, tough guy actor. Um, Then there are three women, Darlene, who is at various points in the play dating Mickey or dating Eddie. There is Donna, who is Oh gosh. She, yep, yeah, this was where it begins. She is brought over by Artie uh, because she is homeless, essentially. Um, and she's brought over as a care package for Eddie and Mickey, where they say uh, in the play that they're going to keep her as a pet and they say fuck her uh, when they want. So uh, okay, so that's that, That's where the play goes. So if you're yep. still with us so far, <laughs> here's your second chance. Here's
1: here's the arrow and the downhill this slope is, yep, that we're heading. It's diving. <laughs> that's Donna. She she leaves uh,
0: quickly near the end of the first act or prior begin maybe beginning of the second act. I forget. The third character is Bonnie. Bonnie is an exotic dancer who is brought over because Eddie wants... uh, uh, Phil is going through a divorce. That's one of the through lines of the play uh, that continues beginning to end. And Eddie wants to help him get over his wife or something right so she's he's like he's
1: like hardcore tail spinning in the scene phil and then, is yeah yeah and, and, phil and, is and, and,
0: and remember yeah. that all this behavior is motivated by incredible amounts of cocaine just so much cocaine so much cocaine at, at all points in the play like handfuls oh yeah i mean <laughs> the, the, the first scene of the play they like snort an incredible amount of cocaine in the scene i yeah. mean just they go and go and go um so, so Bonnie is brought over by Eddie to help Phil get over all this crap that's happening in his life, and she's brought over because she's well-known for her skills in bed. Um, so she's brought over to set Phil up, uh, and, and so that's her portion of the play. She actually has a pretty significant uh, plot point that we will get to as we go down. Those are the characters that leave anybody out.
1: Uh, No no one uh, lines-wise, other names that we'll likely say are Susie, who is Phil's wife. She is uh, never on stage, but she is talked about very frequently. And then Agnes is also talked about quite a bit, who is Eddie's ex-wife.
0: And that's important to note that really all of these guys are divorced with kids. Um, At one point, even Mickey says... Like, yeah, we, you all, we all basically know that I'm just on a tear right now. I'm just on a goof. I'm going back to my wife and kids eventually. And I and that's sort of the attitude of the men is like we can live this crazy bachelor life and then we still have these wife and kids who we could always go back to if we want. But, man, she makes me miserable. Man, that B word makes me miserable. You know, time and time again, it's stuff like that. Um. Yeah, I think that's kind of the sweep of who the characters are. There's lots of stuff that happens, I think, right as we go.
1: Yeah. Um you know, we're, we're introduced to them in this, you know, this kind of first scene and, and we hit right away. I think we're, we're made to look pretty hard at Phil and Eddie throughout the play. Um, they're, they're the first two that we are initially met with as we, as we enter into the scene, Phil is kind of right away describing his, uh, breakup fight with Susie to Eddie and, uh, and kind of the escalation there. There's a lot of, um, Phil, I think your description of him was very apt. Phil is a very physical individual throughout the play. Right,
0: yes. He has—Phil uh, is, I think, to me, uh, a really prime example of the connection between this David Rabe play and all of his other plays. This is sort of an outlier in terms of David Rabe plays. He writes a lot of plays about ex-soldiers or current soldiers. He writes a lot of um, plays about vi- you know, violence and the male psyche— and that's not throughout much of this play except for Phil. Phil is a guy who is so he's, – he's a large, intimidating man. I think you have to cast him as a huge guy uh, because he's, he's intimidating. And he believes that he can't control his violence, that he just – he has the hardest time not hitting people. And he comes over in this first scene of the play because his his relationship with Susie, his wife, is over now. And Eddie says, well, it's been over before. You have a fight. You give her some time. You go back to her. Chill out. He says that as he snorts an incredible amount of cocaine. And uh, Phil says, no, 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 no. This time it's really over. And it's over because I hit her. And I, I, I think that we see Eddie react to that. He asks several times, like, oh, my gosh, you hit her. Come on, you really You hit her? I mean, that's certainly what we get, I think, is the sense that that's a change, a new low potentially for Phil. But then Phil describes it. And in one of the really defining pieces of this play, somehow makes her out to be and almost unconsciously makes her out to be the bad guy. Right. That she was she you know, he was home, he was drunk, he was talking about all this stuff that he had going on, all these plans for taking over Vegas and how to fix world politics. right and she right. wouldn't listen to him. But why wouldn't she listen to him, Jackson?
1: Oh, shoot. It's, uh, I, um, I don't remember. She's (laughs) asleep. She's asleep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He comes home and wakes her up to explain all this because he's drunk. Yeah. She's like sleeping. (laughs) He crashes in. And he can't imagine why she's not listening to him. So he hits her. Yeah. And he has the audacity to say like, her tooth hurt my hand. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Which, you know, we're laughing about because we didn't say this. And I do think it's an important point. The play is a comedy. Right, and it's a dark comedy. So we're laughing at things which don't sound funny, but in the play they're really framed to be funny. There's a the, there's the, a it, sort of dark chuckling that's supposed to happen.
1: Right. Yeah, it's absolutely a dark comedy, the, and it, and it continues throughout. Like this scene, they get into this. Basically, they they they. <laughs> Poke at science. They pretend to be scientists and basically use science in quotes to determine that she just hates men. in this Right? Scene, oh my gosh! Which is the, just like the
0: exchange is so funny how they get there yeah. because uh, Phil. All this Phil has explained all of this, and Eddie, who I don't know, maybe Eddie's the central character. He's the he's the through line character, I guess. Uh, says basically like, well, I could just call her and fix it for you. And Phil says, no, you can't. She hates you. And then I've actually, I've played this scene as a final for a class, the ensuing dialogue, which occurs, (laughs) which is that Eddie tries to say, what do you mean she hates me? Susie likes me. I've been her friend longer than I've been your friend. How could she hate me? And, and And they continue on.
1: Well, they continue on and describe that she also hates Artie as well, who is the other friend, and and it just like keeps going. And he and he he describes it as he he tries to. The, the dictionary is used a lot in this play. He's trying to find a word that describes a bunch of gathering a bunch of of information and then condensing it down to a single thought. And he decides because that that like is science. because
0: he's he's trying to understand how it could be flipped in her head. Like he's trying to say it's not that Susie hates all men, so she hates. Me. She didn't start by hating all men. Instead, right. she started by hating you, Phil, because you hit her, and hating right. Artie because he's an ass, yep. and because she hates you two. Then there's this broader world where, because of that, she hates all men, and that's why she hates me. And he goes, "What? What is that? When you like have these smaller points and they equal one larger point? Right? <laughs> they sort of they both at the same time go. It's science. Science." <laughs> Sci- scientifically, we've proved that she hates
1: all men. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> and that and, and that that scene sets up right away. This like these these uh, especially these four men uh, Eddie, Mickey, Phil, and Artie. They are all um, <laughs> they're like people with enormous intelligences that their body has stopped keeping up f- to them. Uh,
0: or. They're a bunch of idiots who, <laughs> right, because or, of the world that they're in, have some language capabilities clearly, <laughs> um, and so they pretend to be really smart.
1: Right. That that may be another way to interpret it as well. But regardless, their conversation are full is full of big themes. Oh big, my gosh! Like their like, conversations are
0: incredible, and I almost yeah. don't mean that in a complimentary way. They're incredible, right. like. What the... How did you... How is that possible? How are we... They just talk and talk and talk. They talk in these circles and in these incredibly complex crazy nonsense. Like, I I love this moment later in the play. It's with Darlene. And Darlene and Eddie are having one of their many fights throughout the play. And Eddie is trying to say something, but like always, his saying something is just this roller coaster. Right. Like, I mean, it's it's so hard to follow. And Darlene finally says like, my (laughs) gosh, Eddie, I can't listen to you anymore. You talk and you talk and you talk and you take me on this crazy journey and it just ends up not meaning anything.
1: It takes so long for your thoughts to land Anywhere. and then they, they land nowhere
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're just baloney she of course doesn't use the word baloney right <laughs> and and that's really I mean not not only is Eddie guilty of that although he is the prime suspect he's the he's right. the great example of that but really all the characters are guilty of this roundabout crazy hubbub of language that somehow makes up their relationships
1: right yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Phil Phil as well is is this kind of justifier, but he justifies by like really circuitous routes all the way around to get to where he's going. The Let's talk a little bit about these four. As we've mentioned, this play is is just full to bursting of words. So it's going to be almost impossible to talk about everything we want to talk about, but I I really want to talk about the power dynamics of these four. Um Because that, I I feel like a lot of ebb and flow in the play is around that. Um, Eddie seems to be, I think you're right, kind of a center pillar of that. A lot of the relationships seem to ebb and flow with him. But the other person who is living with him is Mickey. And I think that of the four, he is probably the solid contender for someone who has a similar power dynamic or a similar status as Eddie.
0: Well, Mickey has this sense of being sort of the the clear-eyed head above the clouds. Uh, And it's not that he does less pharmaceutical experiments, as he calls them, than other people, but it's partially because of who he is. Mickey is this really guarded, sort of cold, intellectual kind of person, constantly commenting, but never really emotionally engaged in the goings-on, and he gets uh, lambasted for that many times uh, throughout the course of the script by multiple characters, and... uh, you know, if I were to do this play, I'm not sure that I ever could because of the content. I'm just not sure I could put myself in the position to have to say some of the things that are said in this play. But if I were to be in the play, I'd like to play Mickey. I find the character so fascinating. This relationship we has with everybody where he – I think because he knows the, the, the crazy hubbub of life that exists, he tries to detach himself. But because of that detachment, he gains a sort of power with the group, that that Eddie also has a similar sort of power, but Eddie's power is because he's so involved in, in the everyone. hubbub. I mean, yeah. he, he almost is the hubbub, <laughs> mm-hmm. just himself of drugs and cacophony and language that occupies all of their friendships. And so Eddie is like the pillar of this craziness, and Mickey is like the one who's detached from the craziness. And right. because of that, they sort of are these opposite poles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mickey has, I, I, and I think you're absolutely right. He gets a lot of kind of talk back about that. There's this great scene where Mickey like diagnoses Eddie and his relationships, especially with Phil and Artie. And he just like tries to, it seems it's, it's that moment of like, I didn't, I, I didn't complain to you to hear that. <laughs> Um, Eddie didn't complain to Mickey to hear him tell him why he's so messed up, but Mickey like pretty much nails it, and eventually Eddie lamb blasts him as well, and they end up well, mad at each and other that, and separating for the night.
0: And that fight ends with a really um, iconic line from Mickey, which is they're fighting and they're fighting, finding and finally Eddie basically says, "Well, if you're if you're not emotionally involved in the goings on of our lives, well, what kind of friendship is this?" And Mickey says, "An adequate one," and leaves. I mean, that, that for me is, first of all, I love the writing there. I love the line, just linguistically and dramatically. But it also is a great insight into the character, right? He has adequate relationships, things which fulfill his needs. He's almost sociopathic. Now, we do get the sense that he has sort of a deeper emotional sense. He just isn't showing it. Like in the same fight, Eddie accuses him of not having any emotions. And Mickey says, I don't, I have emotions, Eddie. I just don't have
1: yours. Right. <laughs> yeah, they don't align. <laughs> right. I don't have
0: your craziness. Yeah. I have my own emotions and they suit me just fine. Right. They're just not as wild as yours are.
1: Mm-hmm. And he gets upset too. Like when Eddie, um, basically steals Donna away from him in the equation after he has stolen Darlene away from Eddie. Um, he gets upset about that. So there's moments where he gets irate. Um, but, uh, I, I think I agree. He is mostly kind of off and away and,
0: If you decide to watch the movie and also know that Kevin Spacey's in it and there's some problematic things with Kevin Spacey, um, but he is in it and he does just a stellar job as Mickey. I think he captures this sort of cold intellectual – he's he's flip. In fact, that word – they have a whole argument about the use of that word. Versus sarcasm. (laughs) Right. Whether it's flip (laughs) or sarcastic. And that's I think a good – because we brought up words – The way that David Rabe writes his scenes is incredible to me. He is so good at writing scenes where the characters are fighting over, like, minute details. But in reality, they're fighting over these huge issues in their relationships. It's, I mean, Hurley Burley really is a steady in how to use subtext. Where what they're actually talking about, these characters, is almost never, almost not a single time what they're really talking about
1: yeah yeah Let's, let's see
0: if we can think of some examples so the flip and sarcastic is a great one this is very very late in the play eddie is upset about something we haven't revealed what yet so we'll save it but eddie's really upset about something and he doesn't like that mickey is joking about it so eddie accuses mickey of being sarcastic and in response mickey says i'm not being sarcastic i'm being flip." And they proceed to fight about those words. And the fight is about what word to use. But really, what the fight is about is whether Mickey is being mean and dismissive, i.e. sarcastic, or whether he's being just light and trying to add some humor to the situation, which is Mickey's argument and when he says he's being flip. So that's a good example of one. Do you have another
1: thought? Uh, well, the, the the kind of the Chinese versus French restaurant oh, yes. is, is, a, is a big one. So... Uh, Darlene and Eddie are uh, trying to figure out where to go for dinner, and uh, sh- she <laughs> he's, he's asking her whether she wants to go to a Chinese place, and she says, sure, that's fine. Um, or, or what's what's the exact phrase? It leaves the door open, and that's kind of the trick of it. It's like, that'll yeah, be like, okay, or, yeah, that's, or something like that. that sounds
0: good. Uh, that's fine, yeah. It's something where she's like, I could do that. That's fine. Like, her whole, it's, it's all non-committal,
1: Right. So that to Eddie is like, okay, so she doesn't want to do that. We could also go to a French place, and she gives the same answer. Yeah, I like that one too. That's fine. And so it, it starts this fight of um, can you not distinguish between the two restaurants? Right, because she <laughs> um, says
0: uh, – Eddie says, well, which one do you want to go to? And she says, well, surprise me. Well, I don't want to surprise you. Which one do you prefer? And she says, I like them both exactly the same.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> which yep. proceed, they proceed to have a fight about – Mhm but the, what they're actually in my estimation actually fighting about is that she was with Mickey before and and that she's had other she's she's mentioned she's had another relationship like this in the past as well so what Eddie is actually like reacting to is You were just with Mickey and now you're with me. And are you even able to distinguish between us? Right.
0: (laughs) Like the fact that she likes both Chinese and French restaurants exactly the same is to him in a front because she can't tell the difference between things. So how can she tell the difference between him and Mickey? Which is just ridiculous but it's but, so great I mean it's, it's so great. It, the writing is just so great the <laughs> way he uses these these small fights of life to envelop us in these deeper fights between the characters I think both of those are really really good examples of how masterful Rabe is at least in that part of dramatic writing
1: yes yes I I, I definitely agree um Let's talk about Eddie's relationship with Phil a little bit. We're we're kind of, we're kind (laughs) of spoking out from Eddie here because he has a lot of relationships with a lot of people. We talked
0: about Eddie and Mickey first. uh, I think in some ways, just because I like Mickey the most. I
1: like Mickey a lot too.
0: (laughs) But really the core relationship of the whole play is Eddie and Phil. And it's, it's almost hard to tell you exactly why if you haven't read it other than they just get the most screen time and the most plot points happen around that relationship. So talk to us a little bit Jackson about the power between those two guys.
1: Sure. So just kind of backstory wise, um, the reason for Phil to be friends with Eddie is pretty evident. Um, Phil is a struggling actor and Eddie is a casting agent. Um, uh, and, uh, so, so that relationship starts, and they they kind of have this relationship. He's very committed to uh, coming to Eddie with. Uh, what is going on with his life. He kind of uses him as a sounding board for a lot of things. He asks him about, well, he he complains about his wife, Susie, a lot. Um, he asks him about different roles that he's auditioning for. You get the sense that he appreciates his uh, advice in that. Um, Eddie turns him away from a number of people that he kind of describes as sharks within the community um, of casting folk.
0: And whether that is really altruistic right, is a big right, right. question. Whether he's Uh, preventing phil from ruining his life by working with casting directors who will screw him over that's certainly possible that's Mm -hmm. maybe the best version of eddie right right (laughs) the the worst version would be that he wants to keep phil struggling on Mm -hmm. sort of a subconscious level because it help it works for him
1: well and that's yeah that's the thing with eddie is he's got this weird relationship with phil which is he's um, uh, uh, the structure of this is really interesting because throughout the play, we're not really sure why. Um, he's like, and he's- no
0: one else is either.
1: Except for Mickey, eventually, who well, seems Mickey to have him nailed. Well, Mickey makes an
0: accusation. <laughs> yeah, it's I, it's not. I'm not sure. I actually agree with what Mickey says, Ooh, but I do okay. think it's an interesting perspective on Eddie and Phil's relationship.
1: Sure, sure. So, so he. I mean, he invests a lot of time into him. He interacts with him a lot. He likes to keep him kind of close. Uh, he, he he has him over a lot. He lets him sleep there. Um, right. They're just constantly
0: together, and yeah. really throughout the whole play, they're Eddie and Phil are always together. And really, when Phil. Is taking advice or having conversations with other members of the gang, quote yep. unquote, and not listening to Eddie. Eddie gets sort of upset. Mm-hmm. He like it's almost like Phil is like his pet or his property.
1: Right, right. And what Mickey winds up accusing him of is that he like has he wants Phil around and in this state because at least Phil is doing worse than him, um, and and that that kind of. Uh, that ability to help someone um, and and be in a better place uh, is is almost like a therapeutic thing for Eddie. Right, it um, gives him
0: somebody to look down on, right. even in like a paternal caring way. But mm-hmm. at least he's still looking down on someone. Like Mickey says, you know, well, if you you know if you hit rock bottom, you can be sure that Phil will be staring wide eyed from the gutter below you <laughs> the whole time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> But maybe you don't agree with you. You're saying you don't agree necessarily with Mickey in that in that estimation. Or?
0: I, I I certainly think that that is a cynical way to view Eddie and Phil's relationship. Sure. And Mickey's pretty cynical. The whole play is pretty cynical. You know, all we're doing is guessing what David Rabe thought when he was writing the characters. But my estimation of Phil and Eddie's relationship is a maybe a better version of a similar idea, which is I I actually do think that that Eddie. You know, Eddie's journey, if we can even call it that through the whole play, is the struggle to try to find any meaning in his life in this drug-fueled craziness that was Hollywood in the the 80s or at least as Rabe imagined it. He just – he has no sense of any connection to anything else. And so – I think that for Eddie, Phil—helping Phil, taking care of Phil, providing advice for Phil, having somebody like Phil who really needs Eddie in his life is fulfilling. You know, Mickey's version of this is that it makes him feel good because somebody's always lower or worse off than him. My version is maybe that it makes Eddie feel good to have somebody need him. And Phil needs Eddie. Uh, Now, maybe he— or at least he thinks he does. Eddie right. might be bad for him in the end, um, <laughs> but he, uh, Phil thinks that. And so that, I think, is is one of the things that Phil latches, or Eddie latches onto as a way to find meaning in his life.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I suppose that's probably true. He is kind of like... Going full bore through this whole play, blinders on—maybe not blinders on, but maybe eyes blazingly wide open, just and trying just
0: bright red from all the cocaine, just
1: <laughs> bright red the whole time, and you know, just trying to latch onto something that makes sense to him. Um, there, there, there's a lot in this play that is kind of this weird uh it's interesting that you brought up originally uh how much rape deals with kind of masculinity and and the male psyche in general throughout and and it feels like Eddie is is exemplary of that he's this guy who was raised in maybe a time that was much more um uh, that was very you know male gender role dominant and he is now in this other world and he's not lost all of it and he's kind of blazing through it and he's got all these big thoughts and things that he can change. We
0: we learn this crazy piece of Eddie's past really late in the play, which really changes some things about what we think of Eddie. And uh, honestly, I'm not a hundred percent sure it's true, (laughs) 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 but uh, this is at least what they say that in Eddie, Eddie was raised by these hyper—I won't even say religious because I think that gives it too good of a connotation—hyper cultist yeah, cult, yeah. parents who would beat him senseless as a way to make him become morally right. It's so like at yeah. one time, he the story that they tell is that he tried to watch this show or asked permission to watch this show that he shouldn't have. And so his parents took him out in the woods and just beat him senseless with wooden clubs. Right. So— at least that's what Eddie says, where he comes from as right. a person. And so as a child, this is a guy who was raised without without the ability to, to form any connections. You know, I mean, with with uh, with a family structure like that, you gotta imagine the isolation. And so then he's pushed out into the world as an adult man. And I don't know how he escaped his parents or that the cult world that he must have belonged to, but he's pushed out into the world and he's I don't know if he was expecting more connections than he actually found, but I mean, he's really isolated, even despite the fact that he lives with a friend and has friends over all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's very isolated and kind of emotionally isolated occasionally as well, or at least he certainly feels that way. He feels the need to explain himself a lot and try to be sure that his point comes across a lot. Um, the the fourth guy in this equation is Artie, and I at least want to touch on him before we move on. He's kind of a weirder character, yeah. Like you kind of wonder why he's there occasionally. What what are some reasons? Perhaps he's he's around.
0: <laughs> well, he one of the things that he does is push. He he he's another person with whom Eddie could have a relationship that he he really doesn't. He really. You know, the core of this argument about why Eddie is friends with Phil really comes at the end because Artie accuses Eddie of ditching his friendship for Phil's friendship. And Artie says, you know, why would, you, why would you ditch me for Phil? Uh, you know, we could be equals. Phil's this crazy, loose cannon, violent. He's pathetic. Why are you friends with him? And you blow off my friendship. I try to take care of you. We can have equal conversations. We're both very, mildly successful in the business. We have this sort of equal footing. And so I, I think one of the things that Artie is around to be is a contrast with
1: Phil. I I think you nailed it. Absolutely. Because Mickey
0: can't be that. Mickey's got a very different role. He just doesn't function that way.
1: Yeah, very different status with Mickey, but I absolutely agree that Artie is like, maybe he's not the healthiest of friendships, but he's certainly healthier to (laughs) have. I'm not sure
0: that healthy is really the right word. There's
1: not health in this play. There's not a Um. a
0: single moment of healthy behavior (laughs) in the whole play.
1: Right, absolutely not. But I agree that he would be a uh, a friend who is on like this a similar footing, and he is hurt by the fact that Eddie kind of went for Phil and is spending this much time with Phil and investing that much energy. And also, Eddie does a lot in this play to kind of uh, bring uh, Artie down. A little bit. He's constantly berating him, much the same way that he berates. Well, they, they fill, all berate each other,
0: really. I mean, part yeah. of this gang of friends is just about digging on each other as much as possible. Like this is a great moment to say because it's a dig. One of my favorite lines in this play and and of lots of different plays is this. This is this series of lines. I will quote it. Artie says, "You're a small-minded prick, Eddie. I hope you know that." Mickey says, "He does," and Eddie says. I am familiar with the opinion. However, I do not myself hold it. <laughs> I mean, that's yep. that's great. And that's the kind of exchanges they have really the whole play.
1: Yeah. Yep. It's very quick, very very witty throughout the whole play. There's also a whole we we, we got to at least mention how often the phrases blah 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 and right, um, yes. repeta- re- oh dang it, repetita, 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 blah blah blah
0: repetita. Yeah, yeah, so Ray advises the actors and the readers at the beginning of the script that the characters are going to use these phrases, blah blah blah, repetita, and so on, you know, these sort of filler phrases a lot. And he says that you should, as an actor, you should just sort of blow through them. Treat them as if they're real words that somebody's saying as part of the real speech. Don't don't throw them away. Just use them as, as part of the forward flow of dialogue. What do you make of that, Jack?
1: Yeah, well, I think what it does is it necessitates a very uh, uh, realistic, natural form of pat- speech pattern. If, if you have to justify as a character occasionally saying blah, blah, blah and not actually landing a point, at the end of a paragraph you need to justify that throughout the rest of the play and cuz because it is very interesting to note that at the start of this play he makes that note at the start and then it's i mean it's not everywhere it's 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 around but maybe you know between 10 and 20 times the phrase blah 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 and rapa-ta come up but the rest of the time they're they're saying very complex sentences that that could be delivered flat or not flatly, obviously, but could be delivered uh, intelligibly, but I think they're meant to be delivered as if they're coming up with them out of their heads in the moment, and their their mouths, their brains are moving too fast for their mouths. And so what those lines do is kind of push the actor to justify the fact throughout the play that these are the type of people who just will say blah, blah, blah instead of you know really landing home their point.
0: Yeah, I agree with all that. And additionally, I think that they function as a way to give the audience insight into the way that these guys just feel the need to keep talking. (laughs) It's like a way to say these are people who even when they have nothing to say – will just say nothing but but not but not by say nothing do I mean be silent. I mean they will say just empty sentences. I mean a lot of this play the sentences are intelligible question mark but I'm not sure that they really mean it much because I think part of the the you know, the way that David Rave investigates the male psyche in this play is by saying, you know, these four guys are filled to the brim with nonsense. And they are so isolated that they will just talk and talk and talk as a way to fill the void. And sometimes they say things that kind of make sense, but other times they just say blah, 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 right. just as a way to fill the silence a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. You could maybe read this play by, like, flipping to lines that have <laughs> more than one line in it, like, paragraph, and understand what happens in this play. But there will be many pages that you skip as just, like, kind of filler lines are thrown <laughs> in there, which makes it a really exciting conversation within the play. So don't hear me say that those lines aren't worth it, but uh, but it is interesting to note just how much they talk about nothing.
0: Right, and... It's you know, like you said, the conversations are just sparkling. They're right. firecrackers. You know, I mean, they're just so interesting. Partially because so much of it's nonsense. Uh, you yeah. spend, as I imagine the other characters in the you know in the real world of the play do, just trying to pay enough attention <laughs> to understand what in the world are you talking about? Right, right. What are you
1: saying, <laughs> what man? What is happening? Why
0: are you talking so much? And that's part of it. And then you realize that what they're really trying to say And as soon as you get that, another character hops in and goes on the same train.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like, I got to switch focus all of a sudden. Um, So, look, the, the play, Rabe
0: is a playwright who writes plays for men. I think that that's probably mostly an uncontroversial statement. His plays are really an investigation of men and men at a certain time in history. We're no longer at that time in history for the most part. Um, so the attitudes of <laughs> the <laughs> men in the play about women, which you've said, are highly problematic.
1: Oh, yeah. Um and B- Bordering on what might be evil. <laughs> uh,
0: not, not bordering. <laughs> I mean, the, these are terrible, terrible people. Yeah. All, all four of them, and honestly even some of the women, are terrible, terrible people. Right. They're, they're all destructive of themselves and others. We probably should spend some time thinking about and lamenting the way that the men treat women in this play because mm-hmm. it's so awful.
1: Right. Well, it, yeah, and it, and it defines the read through. Honestly, uh, maybe throughout this conversation, you've heard Jacob allude to some of my facial expressions and <laughs> and uh, and tone in some of this because honestly, I I had a hard time getting past some of the content in this play. Um, starting right away in the first scene, Artie brings Donna over, who is this uh, Midwestern girl who has hitchhiked out, is homeless, and basically he has had sex with her as much as he's wanted to, and has brought her over to be like. The their sex pet during this time. And she is, you know, at the point that she's okay with it pretty much. Um, throughout the scenes she is, you know, she will kind of casually allow them to, you know, play with her and, uh, even, even offer occasionally to, you want to, you want to have sex with me now. Um, and, and, and it's, and it's just very clearly awful. Um, she is she is a character that carries a lot of dramatic weight in this. Um, she has a lot of uh, the, uh, I, I think we'll have time to get to the end, and she has a very important role to play in the end. I don't think the play works without her. Um, but throughout the play, uh, every time she's on stage, basically it's just it's it's a terrible, abusive, uh, sexual predator behavior whenever she's around on stage. Um, from yeah. F- Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, yeah. They're all preying on Donna, who is, by the way, a teenager. Right. I mean, so they they really David Rabes writes this as bad as it almost could possibly get for these guys. The way that they treat this really this homeless young girl who comes into their presence is to use her as a sex pet. Mm -hmm. And that is horrifying. And I think, I believe, it's partially meant to be horrifying. David Rabe writes, I think, four of almost the worst people you could imagine. He really pushes you to the edge of what you're even willing to participating right spend in, time around right. <laughs> pushes you to the very edge of that in terms of violence uh, you know recreational drug use um, uh, you know sexual violence pushes you to the very edge of that and then says can you find any meaning in the relationships <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and and for a lot of people and I'm not even sure that I disagree with this opinion you know that's just it's it's not. It's almost not okay <laughs> right to, to ask uh, audiences to f- try to find meaning in the lives of these abhorrent people. Mm-hmm. You know it's, it, uh, I'm not sure if this play will be produced much, if at all going Ever. forward, especially yeah. in the wake of things like me too, where sexual violence became a, a really prominent note of our society uh, and, and pointing it out and fighting it. Yeah, uh, this play I'm not sure really has much of a life now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. So that's Donna.
1: Yep. So, yeah, That's Donna, and then the uh, the other character. I'm going to kind of go in in order of status as much as I can in this play. The other character, uh, female character on stage, is Bonnie, who we've mentioned before, is this exotic dancer who they call up basically just to let Phil r- release his tension. Um, and and Phil Phil comes back from having decked a guy um, in, in a bar, and he's 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 he, he is bragging about it, but he's actually freaking out about it, is my impression. Um, he is- well,
0: and he's especially freaking out. So so what happened is that they, this bar fight gets started. The reason why it gets started is equally gross, but I won't hurt your ears by saying it. You can read it for yourself yep. if you want. Yep. They get in a bar fight for a really gross reason, and basically Phil hits the guy so hard that he hits the wall and is more or less knocked unconscious. Right. But he, he's he's not blacked out unconscious because he sorts of gets up. He's and like staggering forward. Right. And he continues to walk around. And so Phil feels like he's going to attack him again. So he hits him again. And what Phil says is, I hit him beyond what you should really hit a guy. <laughs> so in in reliving this, what happened, what just happened to him, Phil sort of realizes that, oh, the second time I hit the guy... He wasn't even really there. Right. I didn't really hit him for any good reason. He
1: mm-hmm. was
0: he was done. He was just wa- he was staggering around. He didn't have any understanding where he was. And he starts to realize, "Oh shoot, this is another moment where I lost
1: control." Right. And nearly killed a guy. Um and so so he's freaking out about that. He's freaking out about the, the fact that he it, I believe I have the timeline right in this that he has a kid now, right? and things are still bad with Susie at home and there there's it's 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 all messy he's he, uh, yeah because he comes back at the end of the scene having stolen kidnapped his daughter and brings her over um so he's he's wrapped up in all of that he he thinks that she's going to take that Susie is going to take away his, his child so they invite Bonnie over to just basically have sex with Phil and uh, she comes in. She is kind of interested in Eddie, is my impression. She thought well, she was coming I'm, over to. I'm
0: not sure. I think she's. She felt like she was coming over as a social invitation to hang out, right? To like have a friendship.
1: Yeah. With this,
0: <laughs> with this, with these people, mm-hmm. and discovers that she was really invited over to sleep with Phil.
1: Right. Yep. So they they leave in a in in a, her car. <laughs> Phil is assumedly driving her car. And uh, the scene goes on. A number of other very important things happen that, including I'm not sure
0: we'll get... the fight that we've talked about with Mickey and Eddie about their friendship, where he yep. says an adequate one and leaves.
1: Yep, and uh, and Artie as well is in there as well. Uh, that same fight that we've already talked about, and she comes back uh, bloodied and injured, and she and she tells Eddie that uh, Phil pushed her out of the car, um, out of the moving car. <laughs> And she walked back and, uh, and, and, in, in what is just the most, not even textbook, like, like something else version of victim shaming and not believing the victim, uh, Eddie just continuously tells her she must have done something wrong to make him do that. He will not He will not hear, will not believe, will not choose to allow himself to believe that Phil did this unwarranted.
0: And, and the context of that is really important, right? Because what, what we just said is, is that Mickey and Artie have just had this fight with Eddie, and the fight is about why are you friends with Phil? Why do you defend this guy? This guy's crazy. This guy's an idiot. This guy's dangerous. This guy's pathetic. Why would you invest so much time in this friendship? And Eddie defends Blah, 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 blah. They have this whole fight. Um, they all leave. And then what happens? Bonnie comes in and says, Your friend just pushed me out of a moving car. And Eddie <laughs> says, Well, what did you do to Phil? Right. <laughs> it's like the culmination
1: example. <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Throughout Yeah, absolutely. It comes to head in that scene. And, and it's this, it's this, it's this. It's this very good scene I'd argue one of the better uh, scenes in this for the for the women of the play where she just she she's had enough and she lets him have it says I came over here because I I'm a human being is one of the lines that she says and this is not okay this behavior is not okay um, yeah, w- why
0: would you why would you put me in a situation where this could happen? why are right. you setting me up with a creep? you know I thought we were friends mm-hmm. and I thought and, and you put me in these terrible situations
1: yeah yeah so so that I mean she she is also the character that kind of comes in and and gives us maybe maybe the reality check of the play the verbal reality check of the play about these men's behavior towards women, which is this uh, the the lines actually say in this instance this is not okay
0: right uh-huh. and she has a great speech because you know, Eddie says, well you don't understand Phil's desperate. And she says, oh, right. you don't know what desperate is, buddy. Yeah. I'm a single mother who has to make my living by exotic dancing at a club to cover the life of my child. You don't know what desperate is.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So
0: that's... So she, so she yeah, she provides a little pushback. She, uh, great, great speech for that character. Great scene. Great... You know, at least David Red gave the women a little bit of something, right? In the play, to uh, to push back with uh, all the all the negativity. Uh, there are two more women. One of them Jackson's already talked about is Phil's daughter. Um, the ba- she's a baby though, so she's not cast, but uh, an important woman, and it's it's notable I think that he is a daughter and not a son for what happens. Uh, Darlene, we've talked a little bit about already. She's first with Mick. Well, first she's with Eddie, then she's with Miggy, then she's with Eddie again. Um, she ends up breaking up with Eddie. One of the things that Eddie's in pursuit of the whole play is a serious relationship with her. Um, you know, Eddie's always in pursuit of things that are stable, uh, in the midst of sort of this chaos and then himself undoes them all. You know, he's his own worst enemy. So that's what happens with Darlene. We've talked a little bit about her already. I do want to talk about Phil's daughter and the scene that you brought up. So what happens? How does she get on the stage?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's just incredible. Uh (laughs) Um, We use Again, that word. not necessarily the good okay. version of incredible. Not the good version. So he comes back from from uh, pushing Bonnie out of the car and uh he comes back and he has this long conversation where he kind of apologizes, not really, um and uh for for pushing her out of the car and the scene goes by for a while and suddenly he says, "Wait a minute, I forgot something out in the car." And he leaves stage and comes back in with his child. <laughs> And and, with his uh, daughter,
0: and Mickey and Artie have returned by that point. Um, They, after their fight with Eddie, they went and got Burger King, I guess.
1: Right. Yep. (laughs) Lots of burgers and fries.
0: So they come back, and Phil has his daughter. And there's this sort of moment where all of the guys look at this baby and they start to behave like real people again. <laughs> yeah. They start to th- say things like, oh, Phil, she looks just like you. Look at that mouth. It's your mouth, man.
1: Yep. Makes me miss and, my kid.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. They all say, you know, this almost makes me want to go back to my wife and kids. This, How precious, how beautiful is this moment? Mm-hmm.
1: Which is a beautiful moment for the end of act two.
0: <laughs> all right, lovely, like, touching yeah. and and highlights for me I think one of the ways in which the play uses women as a gender given that it's a play mostly I think about men women come across as dis- despite all of the negative things that are said about women by the guys I do believe that in general they th- sort of think of women as a savior or or the play uses women as savior characters. That, you know, Darlene is who's going to save Eddie from this mess of a life. If he can just have this relation, this serious relationship with her, she's going to pull him out of all the muck. And uh, Bonnie is going to save Phil from going crazy through her, you know, sex skills. And uh, Donna is going to save these guys from a sexual dry spell. By, you know, all they have all these ways. And then the baby comes and it's like it saves them from their own depravity for a moment.
1: Right. Yep. And of course, and then, that,
0: I mean, that's sort of an equally sexist attitude in a lot of ways. Absolutely. That, that to play sort of pillars. Women are either, I'm going to use some foul language here. This is the, 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 what, the language the guys use. You know, women are either whores or bitches or, you know, worthless or scum or dogs. They say all that stuff. Terrible. Yep. Or they're this sort of shining ideal of of what can pull them out of their own depravity. Mm-hmm. And both of those attitudes are sexist.
1: Yep. And I I would I would add on to that. I think you're I think you're right on with that description. I would add on to it that the play structurally itself uses them the same way because every time they're on stage we get a break. Uh, like like right, you get yes. you, you get to take yeah, no, a deep absolutely. breath. And and the way it's structured well, is
0: except with Donna.
1: Except with Donna, but um uh, yeah, you don't get a break from the awfulness, but you get a break from the tirade of these men just talking all the time. Uh, <laughs> and and something, a different perspective walks into the room. And especially with Donna, I feel, or I'm sorry, especially with Darlene, I feel like, has the ability to oppose some of it. And and, and, and Bonnie. And Bonnie, yeah.
0: And actually Donna gets that chance too when finally Phil uh, headbutts her at one point early in the play. Right. And she's had enough. And so she uses the power that she has to push back by just leaving.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I have another beat for Donna, but we got to do some. We have some splaining to do, um, to get there. Um, so uh, we, we're running out of time at the end of this, but we got to talk about the end of the play, which is uh, basically the last three scenes of the play. Um, so uh, I'll try to synopsize as best I can. Let, um, let me
0: set you up, and then you can head out for the for the rest of the play. So, go for it. Eddie and Darlene are having this argument about Chinese food versus French food. One of the great scenes in the play. We've talked about it already. It's really about uh, w- whether she can even whether she even cares if she's with Eddie over Mickey, etc. Uh, they have this fight. Basically, they're going to break up. Darlene finally says, "This is crazy. You're crazy. You don't ever say anything. This isn't working. I'm leaving." Eddie gets a phone call, and. Um, the, the the phone call is what ends the scene. And what, what is the phone call? Well, that, the phone, and really what happens at this moment uh, affects the rest of the play. Basically from the phone call on, we're on one trajectory. Whereas we've been on lots of different plots going lots of different ways. From the phone call to the end of the play, it's one thing. And what is it?
1: Well, the phone call is, I don't know that we know exactly who it's from. I assumed it was from Susie. But it doesn't need to be. Um, but you get uh, Eddie gets the call that Phil has died. Um, and he doesn't. He doesn't describe how. He doesn't describe uh, where he's at or anything. But he just says that he is dead. And uh, and
0: this is the moment. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, I talked about that sort of emotional moment I had reading the play. Reading that Phil had died uh, just really affected me as I was mm. reading the play for the first time that I experienced it.
1: It is a. It it is a stomach punch because of all the things that you expect Phil. To do, I don't know that this was high on my list, at least not leaving so many things behind him undone. Um, I feel like his. his yeah, I, rel- I think
0: it was genuinely surprising. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know when you when you read a lot of plays, it it's just that there's not a lot of surprises. Um, you get you know you, the more that you read plays, the more you sort of understand what's coming. Uh, but Phil dying at that moment in the play really shocked me. Mm-hmm. and uh, and kind of hit me at my core.
1: Yep. So so then the, the following scene happens where they return from the funeral and Eddie is coping and uh you know everyone kind of says, you know uh, And
0: this is the last scene in the play.
1: This is the last scene of the play. Artie is with uh I believe it, it's Artie, Mickey and Eddie uh returned from the funeral. Eventually Artie leaves um but Mickey and uh, Eddie have a pretty substantial scene at the end of this play where where uh mail comes from Phil to Eddie and he has written him a note um it's kind of fortune cookie esque. um do you, do you have the line in front of you um it's like the one who uh,
0: dies in an accident understands the nature of destiny I think it's yeah. pretty close
1: yep and and the and that structure and just kind of Eddie's maybe it's Eddie's personality, maybe it's where he's at, but Eddie goes, it like latches onto it and assumes that there is something kind of hidden in this message for him to discover about Phil's death and what Phil would have wanted to happen. Um and so he goes he he goes all into it. And this is where the conversation about being flipper sarcastic comes in. Uh, Mickey is kind of <laughs> Probably correctly making fun of Eddie as he's doing it. As as th- is there want in their friendship because this is you know he's trying to deduce something really uh, poignant and almost spiritual or something out of this letter from Phil. Uh, and and Mickey's
0: th- point is like, you know what? If Phil wanted to tell us something, he should have called or come over. You know, the door was open. He had have come over and told us something. If he wants to send us a message now, he's going to have to make the leap and talk to us.
1: Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and that, that's the biggest one where Eddie kind of goes, stop being so dang sarcastic. I'm being serious here. Yeah. Um, and uh, so eventually that, that peters out and uh, and Mickey leaves him. He goes upstairs. Um, they're not, not on friendly terms. Eddie is still messed up and he's doing what we haven't really talked about too much. Uh, throughout the play, Eddie is getting physically worse and worse. Um, you get the feeling that Whatever he's taking is affecting him more and more. At the beginning, it's a lot of Coke. In the middle, he gives up Coke because Darlene makes him, and uh, he's drinking a lot of alcohol now. Um, and, uh, he so, goes so
0: back th- to Coke at some point. There. He goes
1: back to Coke, certainly, at the end of the play. Yeah. At the end of the play, he basically grabs all of those things and goes and sits by the TV. He has um uh, w- what what is the big object? The big subtly uh, we always talk about foreshadowing in this. And whenever whenever there's um a gun on stage and how that that foreshadows, how does that kind of lead well? So into in this?
0: the first scene when Phil has come over, remember to say that oh, I accidentally, you know, he says I accidentally hit Susie. Um, she's never left me. When he says, "Oh, the relationship's over," Eddie says, "Well, what?" happened you didn't shoot her did you and there's kind of like a pause and eddie goes phil you didn't shoot her did you do you have a gun on you and phil pulls out of his jacket pocket a gun yeah and Eddie goes phil you didn't shoot her (laughs) and phil goes no i didn't shoot her and he puts the gun away well then at the very end of the play we discover that phil's jacket with the gun is still there And actually, Eddie had brought it to the funeral and brings it back. And so Eddie puts the jacket on in this sort of, that's almost touching. Like his friend has died and he puts his friend's jacket on in grief and despair and wears it. It's obviously huge on him. That's sort of a touching image. But as he's on all these drugs yelling at the TV, what does he pull out of the pocket
1: but the gun? The gun. Yep. He's watching uh, Jimmy Carson uh, or no, I'm sorry, Johnny Carson. Um, and, uh, he is, he's yelling at the TV. No one else is there. He's like trying to have a relationship with John and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And he pulls out the gun and through the scene, he, he, it's 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 another one of those scenes where he's not talking necessarily about killing himself, but he is talking about killing himself, and he's working himself up to well, the point.
0: And and then at the end of the rant, he puts the gun to his head. Yep. And sort of collapses on the couch. And mm-hmm. this is going to be it. He's he's going to maybe do it. Oh, what's going to happen? And in walks a savior. And who's <laughs> yeah. the savior in this play? Women. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, what woman comes to save Eddie from his
1: depravity? Donna. Donna comes back in, having left uh, early on in the play. She returns, having hitchhiked to somewhere, said that she maybe fell in love and realized that she didn't. And she comes back because she's got nowhere else to go. And um, basically, I mean, the scene is so much more poignant than this, but she stops Eddie from killing himself.
0: Well, and, and unknowingly, because of the, the stage directions are pretty clear that when she comes in, she can't see that he's got a gun to his head. Right. So and she he doesn't hides it pretty know, quick. And what they have is a conversation where Eddie basically says, what does life mean? <laughs> am I connected to anything? I mean, you know, he's drugged out of his mind, lost his best friend, crazy, and he says, what what am, am I connected to anything? Is there any meaningful things? How do I relate to the world? He's posing all these questions to poor teenage abused Donna, who basically gives sort of um uh, non almost nonsense answers about how well we're all connected to everything but then almost flippantly she says what i think is one of the crucial lines of the play um she says you know i, I didn't really um i didn't really travel around the country uh, i only got as far as i forget the name of the town it's not this but let me just say because i know it's a town of california oakland i only got as far as oakland and eddie sits up and says i know where oakland is I know what you're talking about. And she says, oh, good. That's sort of the point of what we've been talking about. She says, what do you mean? She says, well, you know what I'm talking about. It's great when we can make connections and understand each other. And she doesn't mean that to have the impact that it has, but the impact of this play filled with language, filled with misunderstandings and miscommunications, I think that Donna presents this sort of core, simple idea, which is, you know... <laughs> It's nice when we can make connections with other people when we can understand each other,
1: absolutely. that of this play where I was struggling through the whole thing, that was the that was the point that that I had kind of a poignant theater moment of like, oh, all these guys have been trying to get someone to understand them this whole time <laughs> and And that line absolutely I, I completely agree with you, really. I think pretty subtly and almost in in, in a, a very grand reveal at the end of the play. If you've if you've made it all the way to that point, hits you on the heart as 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 she comes in from from, from being from running away.
0: Yes, and so that's really the end of the play. She sleeps on the couch, and Eddie yep. goes up to his bedroom, and and that's the end. He's been saved from killing himself that time. Um, why title it Hurly Burly?
1: It's a great question. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it because I spent a decent amount of time thinking about it and I can't quite figure it out. Um, Hurley, so just, I I, I have the clinical knowledge, which Hurley Burley is from, uh, the first lines of Macbeth. Um, the, the witches are talking about, uh, when, when shall we meet again? We three under the stars when the Hurley Burley is done. Um, and and by
0: Hurley Burley, what are they talking about?
1: Uh, the kind of the deeds of the play is kind of what I'm going with. I think
0: with. that they're talking <laughs> about the war. So they they say you know what, what there's this war going on. When are we three going to meet again? And they say when the Hurley Burley's done, when the battle's lost and won. So I think that they're saying after this battle we're going to meet we're going to meet together again. So Hurley Burley in that context kind of means what struggle. Chaos, yeah, <laughs> chaos—the yeah. din, the, yep. the 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 craziness of in this in the case of the Weird Sisters battle. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it necessarily it means like the crazy chaos. Yes, the din, the noise, the 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 clashing, the mm-hmm. the, the nonsense, the craziness.
1: Yes. Yes. So 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 <laughs> go for it.
0: <laughs> so David Rabe titles a play. Let's just say uh, the chaos, basically, right? The Hurly Burly really just means the crazy chaos of of struggle, maybe of the noise, the din. I've also have said all this already. It so I love it. Yeah. As a title, especially for this play, which is verbal chaos. Mm-hmm. It's it's the chaos of lives clashing and anybody struggling to figure out what's going on. It's this hurly-burly <laughs> yeah. around them, this <laughs> craziness that no one can understand.
1: Yeah, it's almost an onomatopoeia of just this, like, you can almost visualize what hurly-burly is. It's just this swirling, wondering
0: Right, and each of these terrible people is trying in some way to figure out what's going on, to make some meaning of their lives in the middle of this Mm hurly-burly that is Hollywood in the 80s, drug-fueled Hollywood in the 80s. Um, Look, so there are these guys that are trying to make meaning of their lives. Of course, that's so sweet but they're not sweet. There's no excuse for the way that they behave. And if you take one thing away from this podcast, as much as I think that the play does speak to this sort of deeper level of humanity seeking out connection, um, that does not excuse the content of the play to me and the way that the men behave. I don't don't ultimately end up rooting for these terrible people. Um, There's some really awesome scenes, and that I think is for me, the reason why the play sticks with me is some of the really great scenes. I'm not sure that those are, those redeem the play and the terribleness that is in some of the scenes, but some of the scenes are really awesome. The scene where uh, Phil says, I'm going to go back to my wife. She's always wanted a kid. So I'm going to go back and we're going to have the kid as a way to fix our relationship. And Eddie basically says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you can't have a kid to fix your relate." I mean, that scene is great. Yeah. We've talked about some of the other really great scenes. Mm
1: -hmm. And it's, and, and, and what is great about this in addition is just kind of watching these things get yanked out of these people's being like they're so down underneath them in whatever they've repressed, whether through, you know, pharmaceuticals or through drugs or through uh, alcohol or just through regular old can't think about it anymore, um, you see these things get sussed out and kind of leached out of their skin throughout this. And you, I mean, my gosh, I hope you don't identify with all of their struggles, but certainly you, 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 you feel some of the little tenets of what they are dealing with. And, and, and I think seeing, I, th- I think the argument of the play is that these people have really, you know, core struggles that are very similar. So,
0: and, and I think that from David Rabe, there's also this message about being a young or middle-aged man. That, that you know, David Rabe writes about these men who are still still have adolescence going on you know they just haven't grown up to be what david rabe imagines a man is supposed to be and so because they haven't reached that level their lives are sort of in shambles for one reason or another and they need to in some way or another they need to grow up and that that happens in a lot of his plays and this one you see four guys who just need to grow the heck up and and so there there's some message in there too about the you know the dangers of of carrying on with behavior that really should have ended a long time ago, that, that, you know, that trying to pretend like you're still this young, you know, for everybody, there's a moment where you have to decide to be a better person, to be a more mature person. And the guys across the play are offered that choice again and again and again. And some of them take it sometimes, mostly they don't. And so their lives are in shambles. And are you know really hard in a lot of ways, but it's really on them.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, a- as we've said, there's just there's just so much more. We're but we're already at an it's, hour it's and 15. so long. I mean, it's that's so long. the play's
0: so long. We could talk for two more hours and not have talked about all the scenes.
1: Absolutely, and not sussed out all the intricacies of these or all the, all the horrible things or just just alone the amount of times that they do drugs in this play. Um, so. <laughs> You should have kept a tally
0: and said like... Cocaine appears on the stage 112 times.
1: Like I imagine it must be hard to do this play on stage. Like you have to consume something that I mean, looks yeah, like cocaine. What I mean, what are actors snorting? Right.
0: What? I'm sure nothing that you snort up your nose can be comfortable. It's right. not like you can just drink tea and pretend it's whiskey. Like you have to snort something. Right. It has to play. go away I, off the table. I think that there's a chance that Sean Penn was doing real cocaine.
1: Oh, <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Oh, And I don't know. I don't know. That's possible. <laughs> well, if there is more to this conversation that you want to add, we would love to continue the conversation with you. We always want more perspectives on this play um, that, that kind of add more and more layers to it. So please, if you have uh, opinions on the play or of what we've said about the play, we would love to continue the conversation with you. You probably won't hurt our feelings. Um, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at no Podcast, or if you prefer email, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com.
0: If you liked this episode, if you like some of our other episodes, the best thing that you can do for us is share the episode on your social media, with your friends, If you like scripts, hopefully that's why you're listening. You probably know people that like scripts. So let other people know so we can continue to build the family. You know, our our listenership grows week to week. We're excited about that. So help us along with that journey. You can find the podcast on Podbean, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. The link to each new episode also appears on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
1: Yes, and th- thank you for supporting us in that way, all of you. Additionally, thank you to all of you who uh, who have looked over at our Patreon account and are, and are thinking about supporting us in that way. We have a Patreon. Uh, this show, uh, while it, it is a, a, a labor of love for us, we love getting to talk about these scripts. It is not free. We have different fees and things associated and time involved, so thank you to everyone who is helping out monetarily with this. Um, and uh, if you want to, you know, see if you like doing that for us. Um, we are over on patreon.com slash podcast. We have a bunch of great tiers for different levels of patronship, so check us out over there.
0: Keep your eye out for what's coming in March. We're doing another themed month uh, like we did for musical month. This one will be a different theme. We're not announcing it yet. <laughs> so just know that we're keeping it from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not going to get myself in any more trouble. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This is No Script, the podcast. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen.
1: And I'm Jackson Nikolai. See you next time. (laughs) Goodbye.